Good morning. It's great to be together and to have this time to worship together in prayer and in song and in the reading and studying of the Lord's Word. Please join me in Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll be beginning in verses 14 through 16, actually looking back over some things we've said over the the last couple of weeks. There is a way that the writer communicates what we're talking about today that I need to make note of before we go into it. In the challenges and charges that the writer to the Hebrews gives us, he uses a form of language that is corporate. In other words, the, the impetus behind, the drive behind, is to understand that what is being said is being said as an activity of a group with each individual doing his or her part. So it's, it needs to be understood as an us thing. And as we unfold this, you'll see four specific us's in here, followed, uh, preceded by the word let. And so four times he's going to say, let us. Kind of like let us. Okay? All right. So that's what it's going to do. And every time it's said, we need to think that it is an individual laboring corporately with an interdependence on each other to accomplish the task. This is not to be understood in isolation as one man or one woman, one young man or young woman, one child standing by his or herself trying to do something simply individually, but that is to be thought of corporately. I needed to say that before we start off so that as we begin to apply these texts, we understand the corporate nature of church, that God has put us together here for a purpose. And that we mutually need each other. And that what each of us does has an outflow into others. I don't know if you followed, you guys know that I'm a huge cycling fan. I like to ride bikes and I love to watch the Tour de France. And I love to watch the Giro d'Italia. I uh, love to watch the Vuelta Espana, the three big races worldwide every year. And, and since I first got into cycling, I have been a huge Lance Armstrong fan. And so you know the suspicions have been out there for a long time. If you follow cycling at all, you know that as early as his first tour victory, he won seven Tours de France. And um, you'll know that from the very early times, there was gossip, there was talk. There were newspaper articles that said Lance dopes. And there were very strong opinions on both sides. For many years, I was the, no, 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 he's just this miracle guy that came over, you know, overcame cancer, and and he's just got whatever it is. And then as things began to unfold and unravel in the last year particularly, 
as some of his closest friends began being called into hearings and sworn under oath and having to tell what really went on. This house of cards that Lance Armstrong built with seven Tour de France victories fell apart. And this past week, on of all shows to do it on, on the Oprah Winfrey network, Lance Armstrong came clean. Now, I said all that to say one particular thing and maybe several things around it. How Lance operated had an impact on a lot of other people. Cancer survivors especially put a lot of confidence in him. And cancer survivors were some of the first and most painful disappointments in all this. If you followed the story, he went by and shared first, before he went to Oprah's show, he went to the Lance Armstrong Foundation, now called the Livestrong Foundation, and told his story to them amid a lot of tears and incredible disappointments. You can read press releases about that that are very sorrowful, especially from cancer survivors. But there was a moment in the interview that was most significant when we think about this thing called community. Lance said that the moment of turning in his heart was this moment. When he heard his son defending him as his iconic hero dad. And he knew that his son was telling a lie. And his son didn't even know it was a lie. He knew that his influence had spread to someone else so much so that they were premising their relationship with their dad on a complete lie. And he said it was at that moment he knew you got to come clean. Now listen carefully. We live in a community called church like the people written to in the book of Hebrews. And we live in a community wherein what we live what we teach, what we believe, what we rest in, doesn't just affect our souls. It affects the souls of others. And so the writer's urgency is to say that this us thing has Influence that is eternal in nature. And so if any one of us lives a lie, as Lance did, then somebody can come and copy that lie and premise their relationship with God on a falsehood. 
And the result would be they would not enter God's rest. So that this idea of corporate influence is immense and important. So let's walk together through this idea of drawing near. And so it's, it's very simple what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk about four problems that the writer to the Hebrews exposes to the church community. And then lead us in those to the solution that he gives and why the text flows like it does in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. So let's start, number one. There you go, Lynn, thank you. The writer to the Hebrews exposes a series of problems and then offers the only solution. Okay, that's what he's doing. He's trying to get your attention in chapters 3 and 4 to alarm you. Now, it goes back to something he said in chapter 2. So could you step back for a second to chapter 2, verse 1, and just look there at how he began the warning, and then he flows out from there. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, For this reason, for what reason? Because Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Propitiation, the only way to the Father. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. This is that thing I shared with you about not being anchored to the truth and drifting. Verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, he's talking about God's law coming through angels, to Moses. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. We saw God's justice in the Old Testament. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Escape what? Now there's two words I want to hold out to you real quick. Wrath and rest. Those words represent hell and heaven. Wrath and rest. What he's talking about escaping in chapter 2 is the wrath of God, the just recompense on sin and sinners. The wrath of God. He's talking about temporal judgment as a picture of eternal condemnation in hell. So he's saying, how shall we escape God's wrath if we don't pay attention to what God says? Okay, that's, that's the first warning. Then he comes into chapter 4, and now I'm going to list out those four problems. Letter A, simply, not everyone enters, so be afraid. This is his first problem that he presents. My brothers and sisters, my friends, not everybody's going to heaven. And this is a problem. It's a serious, serious problem. There are people this moment, dying without Christ globally. Just like this. They're not going to heaven. They're slipping into a place of eternal darkness, wrath, terror, and pain. Not everyone enters, so be afraid. For one, therefore let us fear, 
Lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Notice what he says, let us fear. We should call this a fundamental corporate concern. All of us here corporately should have this concern. Not everyone enters. There should be some fear brewing in us because of this for ourselves and for others. The corporate concern of the church should be a mutual concern for the eternal well-being of each other and of the world. There should be throbbing in the heart of every one of us the love of God for lost people and the danger of false salvation among those who confess Jesus together. There are a few times, and I've driven this home in the last several weeks, there are a few times in the Bible that we're told to be scared. The word that is used here is not a light word for a passing fear. It's the word that explains Moses' terror upon seeing the glory of God so that his knees shook. It means something that makes your body tremble. I've only been scared a few times to that level in my life. I can recount some of them, but have you ever noticed that after a fear like that, how shaky you are afterwards? You know that feeling? What the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that feeling should be passing through us on occasion about ourselves and about others. Because this is such a serious issue and not everyone enters. So be afraid. So the writer to the Hebrews considers that a problem that ought to be addressed. So what does he do next? Let's go to letter B. Not everyone properly values entering, so be diligent. Now there's a story behind that, and we read that story in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, and even a little bit in Exodus, where a group of people were brought out of Egypt... And while they were brought out of Egypt, they were dependent upon God to provide manna from heaven, water from the rock. Miraculously, God would provide food and drink. And He would sustain them. And because they didn't like exactly how He was sustaining them, they began complaining and saying, man, this is hard. It would be better if we were back in Egypt. And so what they started doing was devaluing entering the promised land and elevating the present experience above the future opportunity. This is Satan's trick. That's why he wants you to love this present world more than the next one. He wants you To love your comfort now, love your popularity now, love your wealth now, love your prestige now. He wants you to love your power now in such a way 
as to make you more concerned with your present state than your eternal state. The result is our value system gets twisted. These people in the book of Numbers began to value their present state that they didn't like because it was hard. They had to depend on God for manna and for water. They didn't get as much meat as they liked and they didn't have as fine of accommodations as they liked. And so what they did is they got so caught up in the present that it no longer mattered whether or not they entered the promised land. Their value of entering the promised land decreased as their value of being comfortable now increased. And the result was they began to not even care if they entered. My brothers and sisters, this is rampant in the church and the world where very few people care about going to heaven and being with Jesus. But multitudes care about the temporal comforts of this world. And the result is, there's not much diligence to look at what it takes to get to heaven. Not much care. Not much concern. This should be our chief corporate effort, is to keep ourselves diligent about entering this place called heaven where God dwells, where Christ is, that that will be the most glorious, most pleasurable place that there ever could be. And everyone ought to want to go there. I love when people come back from great vacations. They get back from great vacations and all they can talk about was how great it is to be there. You have somebody go to Disney World, they come back and man, it is all about the mouse. I mean, it is mouse for a month because of how much fun and how much neat stuff. And I was the same way when I went to Disney World. I take a vacation to get to do certain things. I come back and I talk and talk about it. Why? We have places and events and people that that place and that event and that person is really neat. And we loved the experience. But my, my, my brothers and sisters, my friends, nothing can compare to the moment we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And all of the effort of our life ought to be towards that moment. So, here's the second problem. Not everyone properly values entering, so we need to be diligent. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. He says, There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Remember I told you that the rest was threefold? It was a place we go to where God, Jesus, dwell. Okay? It's a person we rest in, the finished work of Christ. And it's a peace we presently have in the midst of trials because we know we're going to get there through Jesus. So it's a person, it's a place, and it's a peace. That's what the writer is letting us know. But in verse 10, it says, For the one who has entered has This rest has himself also rested his work as God did. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience, and I could add, that we found in the book of Numbers, because that's what it's referring to, is their disobedience and the fact they didn't enter his rest. So think with me. The writer to the Hebrews is creating these problems. First is, not everybody's going. 
Second, not everybody cares. Their value of heaven and the holy presence of God, the holy, glorious presence of Jesus, is just not very big concern. So let's go to the third problem that he raises. Not everyone endures in truth. So hold on to the confession. Look in verse... Go to chapter 3, verse 6 first. And he kind of set it out there. Then I'll show two more places in chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was a faithful son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope, firm until the end. That means throughout our whole lives. Then you see that kind of talk again in verse 14 of chapter 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. That means seeing it through all the way until you arrive. And then you see that again in verse 14 of chapter 4, which is where we're focusing right now. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now look at so far how every one of those things says let us. He's talking about a corporate labor that has eternal consequence. He's talking about a corporate effort that has eternal impact. He's talking about a corporate intensity that has eternal ramifications. That means when we live out our lives, we live them corporately influencing one another, either spreading further a lie about how we get to heaven or spreading the truth about how we get to heaven and people follow our influence. And so, not everyone enters. That's a problem. Not everyone cares. That's really a problem. And even of those who want to enter and who want to care, not everybody holds on. Some bail. Some people who started and it seemed so earnest, so intense, just walk away one day. It just Walk away. It seems like a switch flips in them. And you say, what, whatever happened to so-and-so? Whatever happened to such-and-such? Such? I don't know. They just walked away. Sometimes we talk with them and we confront them and they just continue walking away. We don't understand it. But some don't. That's what chapter 6 is about. It's about those who just kind of just get up one day and say, I'm done. God has disappointed me one time too many, one too many difficulties, one too many instances of disillusionment, one many, too many times of Christian disgrace. I'm done with it. And they just walk away. They leave the corporate understanding and they walk out into a refusal of faith. And so this is serious because all that we're talking about is eternal. We're not talking about whether or not you're going to get a nice outfit or have a new electronic device. We're not talking about whether we'll be able to attain a certain lifestyle in this earth. We're talking about something that is irreversible. And once a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl steps out of this world into eternity, 
Nothing can be done to change that. And so corporately, there ought to be this sense that this is important. That not only is it important, it's urgent. And not only is it urgent, we have the resources to make certain our own personal faith and to clearly communicate to others how to have that faith. So let's go to letter D and see how he solves it and why the Scripture flows the way it does. When we get to chapter 4, verse 12 that we spoke on last week, we get to this idea of an entrance exam. Now, how many of you have ever had to take a really hard entrance exam like the ACT or the SAT or anything like that? How many of y'all have ever had to do that? Y'all know what I'm talking about, or a GRE, any kind of entrance exam. Have you ever noticed what the preparation manual for those things looks like? I've seen the ACT preparation manual, and it dwarfs my Bible. I mean, it's huge. And if you want to get ready for this test, I've seen the MCAT preparation manual, those who are going to go to medical school, it makes the ACT manual just look like a just, you know, first grade reader. It's huge. Why? Because learning what is necessary for entering is vital. And those people who want to enter, get into a certain college, get into a certain medical program, they pour over this thing to make sure that they are ready because they know they're going to be examined by the things that are in that book. Now, Verses 12 and 13 tell us that. That in order for us to, exam- to, to enter into heaven, we're going to be examined by the Word of God. What does it say in verse 12? For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So what is he saying here? He's saying... Entrance exam, Word of God. And every one of us, that's what we're going to be tested by. We will be tested by what God has said. That's why the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is God spoke. God spoke. He has told us how to enter His rest in this book. He's told us. Now, not everyone enters, not everyone cares, and even of those who want to enter and at some time seem to care, not everyone endures. It seems like they just cash it in. So let's go to letter D. Help me out there, Lynn. Not everyone properly accesses the only solution. The reason verses 14, 15, and 16 are where they are is that they are an answer to a problem created by the writer to be raised in the minds of the reader. He's writing and he says, not everyone enters. We should be going, ooh, okay. Not everyone could include me, so I need to be concerned about this. If not everyone enters, in other words, it's not universalism. It's not, well, everybody's going to heaven and it's all going to be just great. It's not like that. So I need to be concerned about me, and I also need to be concerned about 
everybody else. Because if I really do love anybody, my greatest love will be their eternal good, that they would know how to get to this place of rest. So I would be concerned about that. Okay, and then, then the problem gets bigger because he says, not everyone values entering. In other words, there's people running around. They don't care about eternity. Evangelist came to town. He was going place to place. He went to this one place. There was a senior adult working there. He said to the senior adult, Friend, are you ever concerned about the hereafter? Senior adult said, Every time I go into a different room, I ask, What am I here after? <laughs> Have you ever done that? Yeah, I have, because our memory is very short. And sometimes our spiritual life is just like senior moments. And suddenly we forget what's really important and why we were here anyway. Suddenly we wonder, what am I here for? The writer says, not everybody values the hereafter. And so very few people think much about it. Then he goes further and says, and even of those who think a lot about it and want to enter, because they don't base it on the Lord's Word, they get it wrong or they simply don't endure because it's not so important once hardships come. So then he says, let me answer the question. So letter D Not everyone properly accesses the only solution. What is the solution? He hangs it out here so clearly in front of us. He uses language that these people who grew up as Hebrews would have understood very clearly. He starts in verse 14 and says, Since then we have a great high priest. They understood that if a man wanted to appear before the Lord, he always had to go to the high priest. He had to come to one who stood between him and God, who on his behalf would offer the atoning sacrifice. He understood the language that is used was crystal clear to these folks. And they said, we have a great high priest. We have somebody who gives us access to God. Who is it? It's Jesus, the Son of God. So he kicks all the way back to chapter 1 and says, remember what I told you about him? God has spoken to us in his Son in these last days. He is the image of his glory, the radiance of his representation. That's him. He's the one who upholds all things through whom everything was created. He is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. This is the guy that, that this is the one. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is him, Jesus, the Son of God. So he says to him, you guys want to enter? I can solve the problem for you right now. Number one, the place to enter, the person to enter, is Jesus. There's no other entry. That's it. Here's the answer. Here's the access. Jesus, the Son of God, stands between us and God. And He can bring us to God. Now let's go further. 
Let us hold fast our confession. What is the confession? The confession is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In that statement that was the confession of the early church were three essential truths. Jesus was Jehovah saves. That means He is salvation. Lord means deity. He is God. Christ is anointed one. He is king. The confession that they would make, if you confess with your mouth, Romans says part of it, Jesus is Lord. It was affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is that your confession is a threefold confession. He is Lord. means He is divine. He is God Himself in flesh. He is Jesus. He is Jehovah's salvation. He is the only means that Jehovah saves by. And He is the Christ, the King that deserves all worship, all praise, all throne, and all obedience. That's what He deserves. And so we have Lord Jesus Christ. This is the confession that we hold on to, that we cling to desperately in order to obtain entry. Look at what he says. He's not just this glorious king, God in flesh, Savior. What is he? He is sympathetic with you. Whatever you are going through right now, the Lord Jesus Christ intimately knows your struggle. And He stands as the access point to God just waiting on you. With sympathetic, understanding, joyful, sorrowful reception of sinners. He's the access point. If I'm going to enter, this is where I'm going to enter. This is through whom I'm going to enter. So he says, okay, here's the problem. Not everybody enters. Further, not everybody cares. Stop with that. Not, not everybody makes it to the end with genuine faith. So what's going to keep us? First is to rightly see Him in His sovereign, glorious Lordship and to rightly see Him in His humble earthly mindset so that we see Him not only as glorious and awe-inspiring, we see Him as humble and sinner-receiving, standing at the door of the house of God, waiting on us every day, every minute, never turning us away. What does He say? Any come unto Me, I will no wise cast them out. He stands waiting. What does it say further? He passed all the tests. He was tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. So He qualifies where I am disqualified because I'm the one who's failed all the tests. That's why I don't deserve to enter. Every time I read the Word of God and it examines the x-ray down into my heart, do you know what it finds every time? It finds a sinner. Unworthy to enter and unable to gain entry. But every time it examines me 
and reveals the darkness of who I really am with its laser beam penetrating focus down to my soul. Do you know what it says? Come you sinners, poor and needy. The Word of God is not just a tool of condemnation, it's a tool of invitation. It reveals the very need for the invitation. It speaks to us and convicts us. And my brothers and sisters, here's what usually happens. When the Word of God begins to prick our conscience and our heart and begins to examine us, what we end up doing is running from God. Thinking that somehow we can run off somewhere and fix ourselves up and make ourselves acceptable to gain entry. That's not what's going on here. Read on, because this gets beautiful. He says, Let us therefore draw near. Now I want to tell you something that's coming up in the next messages. The word draw near was the worship word for coming to God in Hebrew culture. It was the idea of going to the temple, going to the service. That's what draw near was. It's a cultic worship word that was part of their everyday life that meant to go to God. But listen carefully what happens here. Go to chapter 7, verse 25. I'm going to give you a glimpse of what's coming that we're premising our conclusion today on. Watch what happens. In 7.25, same language is used, but this is so good. Verse 25. Hence also He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what Jesus is doing for you right now? He's praying for you. Right now. He ever liveth to make intercession. That's why He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's pleading your case right now. That's why we can confidently, go back to chapter 4, confidently draw near. He is able to utterly save, forever save, eternally save those who draw near. That's the promise that Not everybody enters, right? Check. That's true. Not everybody cares, but God help me, I do. And not everybody endures, but God help me, I can. But how? I just have to come to Jesus. He's waiting. He's standing at the door of the entry to God every minute of every day, every second. Every moment of weakness, temptation, anger, disappointment, bitterment, disillusionment, discouragement. He stands waiting. Let us therefore draw near. He's giving the solution now. The solution to not everybody entering and not everybody caring and not everybody enduring is everybody run to Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. You want to get in? Run to Jesus. You want to care? Run to Jesus. You want to hang on? Run to Jesus. 
In fact, the language that is used in verse 18 of chapter 6 is the word flee for refuge. It's a picture of an animal seeing an oncoming storm and running to a cave and hiding there. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. It is an invitation that the access to God has been opened and it is accessed by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And that if you will flee to Him for refuge, you will enter that rest. If you will flee to Him for refuge, you will care that you go. If you will flee to Him for refuge, it is He who actually will cause you to endure because it is there He lays hold of you. And so, look at the end. What do we find when we run there? This is the glory of the whole statement. What do we find? Here's what we find. Let us therefore, verse 16, draw near. Draw near to who? To God through Jesus with confidence to this throne called grace. And what will we receive there? The first thing we get is mercy. You know why we need mercy? Because we really mess up. Don't we? Can't we admit that together? If corporately we're going to run to Jesus, can't we corporately say we're just really a bunch of mess ups? Can't we say that? Can we admit that? That's why we need Him! It's because we're so messed up! And here... Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. What is he doing? Jesus is inviting us to run to him. Not after we get fixed up. Because the first thing we get when we show up is the honest admission that we mess up. And we get mercy. Mercy is when God treats us not like we deserve. He withholds from us what we deserve. So go ahead and show up at His throne no matter what you've done. Go ahead. Don't let Satan trick you that a few church services will get you ready. A few more Bible verses will get you ready. A few more Bible readings will get you ready. Don't let him trick you that a little more morality will get you ready. The first thing you're going to find when you get to Jesus is the great thing you need is that He is not going to pour out what you deserve. Why? Because it's already been poured on Him. When He was on the cross, everything we deserve was poured on Him. And therefore, He will never let it touch us. This is glorious. But what do we get after that? We may receive mercy and may find grace. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. It is God favoring us, blessing us, giving us, treasuring us, loving us, empowering us, changing us. By Jesus Christ and all His merits. Grace is God just lavishing His love on us in spite of ourselves. So what, what does He say here? See, this entry problem is the issue. Not everybody's going. 
This not caring problem, that's an issue because everybody's going to face God in His Word. This endurance problem, that's an issue because we've seen many fall away in our time. But the answer to the problem is that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is our high priest and He stands waiting for sinners to gather at His feet and trust Him and He'll take us home. That's what He's doing. And so what does He say in the last line? To help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? I am. I find that I occupy that state in life most of the time. I am a needy creature. That's why He's there. To help me with mercy and not pouring out on me what I deserve. And grace pouring upon me His riches and love. And that will do three things for me. It'll get me in. It'll make me care. And it'll keep me safe in my faith. If I will go to Jesus. There are three things we can do with this. Let's just name them. Here they are. Number one, we must set our hearts on Him in heaven. If we just keep on loving the stuff of this world, we're going to get really confused. We need to set our hearts on Him in heaven. We need to contemplate what that glorious place is like. Read it. Ponder it. Set our hearts on Him in heaven. Second, we must set our minds on His Word. The constant test and preparation is here by reading God's Word and letting it convict us and push us back to Jesus again. By examining the depths of our heart with the x-ray ability of seeing what sinners we are. And that doesn't drive us away from Him. It drives us to Him because sinners need mercy and sinners need grace. So flee to His throne And finally, number three, we must set our trust in Jesus alone. One of the reasons many will not enter is they trusted something or someone other than Jesus. 